Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's October 2022 and the UK government appears to have gone completely insane. We're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for the warm introduction. We aim to provide an old-school filmgoer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast, and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash double reel where we list all the films we've discussed in the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify or whichever platform you use as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 30. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and watch a great film instead. Usually this is something we haven't seen yet, but for this month's Second Chance Cinema theme, we are having another look at Get Shorty to see if we like it better this time. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month features Alex Garland's Annihilation. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 30, it's one that got away but eventually did get made, Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we ask whether I was too harsh first time around towards Scorsese's version of Cape Fear. After the intermission, the second reel will feature the big conversation in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 30, we bring you Second Chance Cinema, where we choose films we want to see redone properly this time. But first, some messages from listeners, a.k.a. the Podcast Magazine Letters page. Mike, friend of the pod, has a recommendation. Uh, I just watched Rise of the Superheroes on Sky Documentaries. Good watch and enjoyable watching the transition from comics to silver screen. Thanks for that. I'll aim to catch up on it. On our big conversation, Second Chance Cinema, Letha says, Transformers is getting a reboot, which should fix the Michael Bay problem. I happen to mention our recent podcast, uh, Jamie Chambers, complaints about that, uh, that franchise. Uh, Mike C, a different Mike, says they should redo Batman vs. Superman. It's staggering how much Snyder screwed it up. Jason and Paul actually defended Alien 3, which we'll be covering later. Uh, Jason says the assembly cut of Alien 3 is fine, no need to redo it. Paul says maybe fix the CGI, but otherwise I think it's really underrated. Grant says he'd like to have seen a version of Mad Max Fury Road with Mel Gibson back as Max. Interesting. I asked for some examples of classics that people only liked on the second watch, and we got Matthias with Office Space. I've loved it since. Uh, Alex said Reality Bites, and Mark said the Michael Keaton Batman. On our one that got away, the man who killed Don Quixote, Stephanie said, I'm normally a Gilliam fan, but wasn't keen on the film they eventually made of this. Gary says the documentary about the aborted debt project was amazing. The 28th the 2018 film that actually got made is typical of the director's recent work, unfortunately. Interesting ideas, but a bit of a bloated mess. On our Kubrick entry, The Shining, uh, Robbie says, Controversial opinion, maybe, but I think it's far and away his best film. On our Hidden Gem Annihilation, John says, It was incredible, a great concept, and the silent sequences really resonated with me. Paul says, It could have used a bit more flair and sharper dialogue, maybe. I enjoyed Garland's TV series Devs a lot more. And Wynne said, great visuals and some nice moments, but the ending ruined it. So a little bit divided on Annihilation. Uh, a lot of uh, love for this month's remake. Uh, Petra says, loved it. Matt said, 10 out of 10. Tito says, a clear example of a remake surpassing the original. 
Todd says it's hard to compare the two because the original version uh, couldn't show as much, which reduces its impact, but I like it and the black and white is very atmospheric. And on a new release, we'll be discussing The Woman King. Uh, Luke says they've taken the idea of artistic license to new extremes with this film. Mind you, Braveheart was the same. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we set for ourselves in 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Now, in case you missed it, we recently did a special episode interviewing actor, producer and stunt performer Jamie Chambers, who has a new film out soon and dropped in to tell us all about it. That's available on our feed now. And also, just to quickly mention our other podcast, which you might like to check out, The Adamson's Verses. This is where we step away from the world of film a little bit and talk about stories, news and anything else that's caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus The Conspiracy Theory, is out now. With that little piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's get into this month's episode. And our theme this month is Second Chance Cinema. All of our features cover films that either we didn't like or didn't work the first time, as well as they could have done and deserve another chance to be seen. Uh, that's kind of, you know, and the big conversation is about redoing films we like to see done better. Um, but our, you know, our, our roundup is the usual, where we start with um, with the news. Uh, so, what what news uh, has caught your eye, mate? It's been a couple of deaths, hasn't there? Yes, they have. Um, Robbie Coltrane passed away at seventy two. That's and right. Yeah. Who else? Um, Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury was a few days before. Yeah. So Robbie Coltrane, obviously, super famous now for Harry Potter. He had an extensive TV career in Britain as well. Um, he's super recognisable. You're a wizard, Harry. People have been saying that over and over the past week. Um, you must have been a fan of his, mate. Have you seen him in stuff outside of Harry Potter? Uh, no, I haven't. I know he was in something called Nuns on the Run or something like that. Yeah, it's kind of funny. He did, After his kind of TV career, everyone went, hey, Robbie Coltrane, he's good. Uh, he did two films in the 90s which were absolutely panned at the time and are pretty shit. But they ended up being quite good for his career because they led to him being discovered in Hollywood. So he started doing more stuff in America, became a big name. He also did Cracker over here. So his career blossomed after doing two shit films. It's quite interesting that that happened. It was <laughs> Nuns on the Run and The Pope Must Die. They're both bloody awful. But I think people recognised that he was good, better than his material, and it and, and ended up, oddly enough, being quite good for him. And he's, yeah, he had a stellar career, really. Angela Lansbury, she was 96, so hell of a life. Um, what's she most famous for? Obviously, Murder, She Wrote on telly. Uh, we talked about her in The Manchurian Candidate, original version, where she was amazing and miles better than Meryl Streep in the same role. Uh, and obviously she was Miss Potts in the 1991 Beauty and the Beast. So a bit of everything, really. Yeah, um, I always recognised her from um, Murder, She Wrote, yeah. just because that was always on the telly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But perhaps perhaps a bit underrated as an actress. I mean, she had three Oscar nominations and could have you know, deserved maybe to win for Manchurian Candidate. That's the way it goes. Yeah. Uh, so other news... Uh, also not great news that more allegations are coming out about Bill Murray yeah being a bit of a cunt yeah it's a shame because our, our news section every month is usually a mixture of people we like dying and people we thought we liked turning out to being quite horrible people um, there's stuff about when he was on Saturday Night Live he dropped um, an a, a child actor in a, in a trash can 
Um, the kid who played Scott Evil in the in the in the in the um, Austin Powers films. What's his name again? Um, but anyway, he dropped him in a trash can. He's been accused of uh, harassment on set. It's uh, yeah, Seth Green was the kid that he hurt. So it's all sorts of stuffs coming out about him, which is a real shame because he was quite beloved, and it's really harming his reputation. All of this mm. is coming out. Anything else you've seen? Um, Marvel delayed a load of films recently. Oh, really? Which ones? Um, it was hard to read because of how Americans do their fucking dates. Yeah. Um, it was on Rotten Tomatoes, and that's obviously a tomato. And that yeah. was all. I thought they were going to be released in June, but I thought it was September. I think it was like the 9th of June, but I thought it was the 6th of September, so it looked like it was delayed for an entire year. Um, instead of nine months or whatever it was, but right. yeah, they've pushed back a lot of films, which doesn't bode well because of how shit their films have been recently. Yeah, um, so this is their twenty twenty three slate, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. So Blade, the that the Avengers, what's it called? Avengers Space Jam or something like that. <laughs> no, I don't know which one that is. It's the one that's coming up. Avengers Secret War. That's all oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Can't be fucked with that. Um, oh, I think a few of those kind of films have just been pushed back because yeah. I think partly because how shit like Thor was received, uh, Black Widow's kind of contributed to that as well. And then obviously everyone's come out and said the CGI artists have just fucking had enough of how Marvel have been pumping them. Yeah. Um, with long hours and feeling you know underpaid and underappreciated, and that's why the films have been coming out shit because they've not been given the time to do them properly. Yeah. Which it can, it can be a good thing or a bad thing. I remember Riz Ahmed saying when he was in Rogue One and they had to stop and do reshoots, which is definitely when they just edited Darth Vader into the film because that film is horrendous at the best, at best, sorry. And then they put Darth Vader in just to make it a bit more redeemable. Mm. And he said, oh, reshoots don't necessarily mean like the film's bad and folk have changed their mind. You know, it's just like, oh, this shot doesn't look quite right. We've something that the CGI team couldn't cover. But t- for delaying a film means that something has gone wrong. And yeah. to do it to four or five films means that I think it's to do with the whole kind of concept that Marvel have been experiencing recently. Yeah, I mean, re- reshoots usually mean something's not gone right, although often reshoots can turn a bad film into a good one. Um, it sound, I, I, Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think Marvel's having some problems. It's not looking any better over on the DC side because the word of mouth for the new film Black Adam starring Dwayne Johnson is getting terrible word of mouth, suggesting that that's going to be a big flop as well. Oh, dear. That's um, a shame because he's re- that's the film that he's always wanted to do, uh, Dwayne yeah. Johnson. He's, you know... Um, it's kind of in the film that's like his kind of his baby, kind of like Deadpool to Ryan Reynolds. I'm not trying to compare the two, but you know no, the way that Ryan Reynolds yeah, wanted to mean. do Deadpool yeah. for fucking ages. Yeah. And it kind of felt like he could do it. But Black Adam just seems like another superhero who, I don't know, just is like Superman, but isn't like Superman. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, look, look wait and see, because sometimes you hear like bad things about a film and then you actually see it, you go, oh, actually, that was pretty decent. Um, but it's yeah. got a decent cast. It's got, obviously, Dwayne Johnson, who's always good value. Viola Davis is reprising her role as Amanda Waller. Pierce Brosnan, yeah. you know, decent. Aldous Hodge, um, Noah Centennial. Why do I recognise that guy's name? What's he been in? I don't know who that uh, I don't know who that prick is, but I know I know his name. Um But yeah, it's like a solid cast and you think, mm, cool. Maybe. I don't know. Will it be good? And then you hear these things about the reviews getting panned. The thing is you see someone like uh, Aldous Hodge and you go, Oh yeah, I really liked him in, in it was one night one in Miami, Miami yeah. you go, Okay, but then he's like t- it's because it's a massive blockbuster, he gets terribly underused anyway, so it's like okay. Um 
Yeah, did you see the the promotional event that Dwayne Johnson was at for Black Adam, where someone in the crowd handed up their baby to be crowd surfed across for Dwayne Johnson to hold? Phenomenal. It's one of the maddest things I've ever seen. And Dwayne Johnson's like, he sort of, you can see he's, he takes everything in his stride, doesn't he? But he's got a look in his eyes like, okay, well, this is weird. Um, and you just think, what kind of, what kind of crazy person just lets their baby be like, handed across a room by a bunch of strangers. I know Dwayne Johnson's he's probably a safe pair of hands. What about everyone in between? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so there you go. Um, uh, a couple of other kind of d- disturbing sort of trends that are coming on. The Edinburgh Film Festival was shut down. It's not been making enough money. Good. Fuck Edinburgh. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, which is a sign that I think COVID has been really harmful, but it's not getting, it doesn't get the support of big names and big premieres the way the London Film Festival does. And it's it's shut down, which is a terrible shame. It's a shame because Edinburgh is a very good place to hold that kind of thing. Scotland in general is a great place to hold that kind of thing because we're starting to have more films filmed around here, but people just can't be asked flying an hour up from London. Yeah. Um, to come here but I'd much rather do a film festival in Edinburgh which is much more picturesque than fucking London yeah sorry yeah. but London's a busy fucking shithole um, yeah I know exactly what you mean and it, yeah it is a shame I think they should be putting more effort into things like that and stuff coming out of India that like right wing groups as we know the the regime in um, uh, in India is pretty much kind of Donald Trump only oh him. is that Narendra is that his name Narendra Modi yeah he's a psycho is he a knob he's a oh, psycho okay. he's basically basically a fascist and there is now all sorts of right-wing pressure on bollywood anything that seems not kind of hindu nationalist enough is getting review bombed you know basically threatened that there'll be boycotts if you don't make these films into patriotic flag waivers for modi's version of like uh, of, of you know indian patriotism anything with like muslim storylines is getting absolutely killed at the box office um so it's a bit it's getting a bit sinister over there um okay it's quite worrying I just want to do, speaking of India, um, my missus and I went to Akbar's in Glasgow last night. Yeah. You know the chain? Yeah. Best Indian we've ever had. Just shout out to Akbar's on Saki Hall Street. Thank you very much for the lovely meal last night. Just want to put some positive news coming out of India. Um, yeah. Their food. Yeah. Um, well, if they, if they want to sponsor us, we'd be more than happy. Oh, mate, we had one of their family nans. Yeah. You know the nans that's like the size of your firstborn? Oh, fantastic. And I was like, I was she, she'd never been. And she was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Sorry, this is a pure tangent. But <laughs> she's like, maybe maybe we need rice. I can't have curry without rice. And I went, trust me, this nan will do the job. But anyway, shout out Akbar's and fuck Narendra Bodhi. There we go. So yeah, that's, uh, unless there's any other news headlines uh, you've seen, mate. Um, I think I had something there. Uh, just a couple of trailers. Um, Wakanda Forever. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is coming out. I don't know I don't know how I feel about it because Derek Bozeman, who is Chadwick Bozeman's brother, came out and said, Why are we retiring this character? My brother wouldn't have been so egotistical to have this uh, character retired. So just cast someone. Um yeah. so it's I'm I do not know how I feel about that. I totally get it because it's very, very sad. But um yeah, don't know how I feel about that. There's a, you, a film you, that you said sorry. something when we were talking about this last year after Chadwick Boseman passed away, which is like there's a lot of amazing young black actors that could play um, that character, but they were all in the first Black Panther film. Yeah, Daniel Kaluuya, Michael yeah. Michael B. Jordan. You can't cast who's his name. What's the name of that guy? Jonathan Majors, because he's in the Marvel universe now. Playing. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. The, did you watch Loki? Uh, yes. The the TV show, yeah, he's in yeah. that, so yeah, you can't. Yeah. Oh yeah, so he is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think they could have, you know, I think they 
could have gone down that route. We'll, we'll just have to see that. I, I think I, the trailers I've seen, they seem to be keeping their cards a little bit close to their chest about what they're going to actually do. So I guess it's still wait and see on that. Well, you know I he think... fucking dies. You know he's not in the film. Yeah, yeah. Like, everyone's miserable in the fucking trailer. Like that, that's just pissed me clean off. Like, yeah. My, Does I mean, that mean hope, that's the last hope, Black Panther film? You know what I mean? My hopes aren't high after the rest of Marvel, um, but we'll see. I mean, you would have thought that Ryan Coogler and that cast would be so motivated to keep it going. Do you know what well, I mean? You, thought, you probably would have thought the same of Thor Love and Thunder with Taika Waititi and all the same cast, but that was shit. Yeah, it's just I think there is an element of this is the only sort of major frontline top level black superhero that's out there. And the first film was so good and he was an excellent part of the... Um, uh, the the Avengers, it's like of all the films to to not fucking be hit by the Marvel decline, they want to make it that one. Do you know what I mean? But we'll see. We'll yeah. see. And just lastly, I saw a trailer for a film that I would have been really interested in. So I'll read the description for you. A runaway slave forges through the swamps of Louisiana on a torturous journey to escape plantation owners that nearly killed him. It's called Emancipation. Uh, it's directed I- by Antoine Fuqua, who can be hit or miss. It's got Ben Foster... Uh, Stephen Ogg, who played Trevor in GTA. Yeah. Um, but the lead is Will Smith. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he's uh, his publicist are billing it as him having another go for like Oscar, Oscar glory, which is so not going to happen. Imagine, imagine the performance is the best performance you've ever seen. It's like it's just as good as Twitter Your Four and Twelve Years a Slave, and you're yeah. like, wow, this is incredible, and he can't even go to the Oscar to accept. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, his award. Yeah, that would be funny. The thing is, the Oscars are quite political, and if they're that pissed off with him that they're not going to let him back to the, it's kicked him out of the academy and not letting him back for ten years. There's no way they're going to vote him. No, actor. totally not. No. Yeah. Um. All right. So, yeah. So that's the news. Um, new releases coming out. Let me just go through a few things. Let's. These are the ones that jumped out for me. I mean, shout out any that that are coming out that you're interested in, mate. But um, there's a film called Bros. It's a gay romantic comedy which is coming out. The reason I noticed it is that one of the leads, I think the guy who wrote and directed it, was in uh, Parks and Recreation. He was very good. Who's uh, in Parks and Rec? He's the the angry guy. What the hell's his name? Um, good. Yeah, yeah. Good. Cheers. <laughs> no, let, oh, let Billy me... Eichner. Billy Eichner. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. fucking funny. Have you ever seen his show, Billy on the Street? I've only seen him in Parks and Rec. Oh, he does this show where he just goes about with a microphone, kind of camp and aggressive, and he goes to this woman who's like, <laughs> he's, she's like, "Who are you? Like, what do you do? I'm Billy. I'm doing Billy on the Street." She goes, "I don't like your attitude." And he's like, "I don't like you." <laughs> He's just a pure antagonistic knob, and he's so he goes up to people. He says, "Name a woman for a dollar," and she goes. A woman, uh, 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 and he's like, "Oh God!" and runs away from them because the kid just puts them on. He's brilliant. That'll be quite good. That. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if he's playing up to that persona that he does so well. Um, oh. But, but you know, I think it was a bit of a labour of love for him to make that film. Barbarian is coming out. It's a horror movie set in an Airbnb. I'm not sure if this is. The, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's the first film to to be set in an Airbnb, but that's come out. Um, Pray for the Devil is also out 28th of October, which looks like your kind of standard demonic possession horror film. Ugh. On the 29th of October, Morris Men has its premiere. Again, this is a film we discussed with its uh, actor and producer, uh, Jamie Chambers. Um, this isn't being sort of heavily touted everywhere because it's a relatively low-budget British film, but it's being premiered uh, at the end of October, and then it's going somewhere on streaming. Um, we thought we'd give it a shout-out because Jamie, you know, was so, so kind to come on the show and talk about it. We will try and find it and watch it and talk about it next month. 
Fourth um, of November, Watcher, which is a thriller slash horror about a serial killer in Bucharest. Uh, Living, which is a London-based remake of a Kurosawa film from the fifties and sixties, from the sixties, I think. Um, we'll see what uh, Ikiru it's remaking. See what that is. Uh, Something in the Dirt comes out, which is a horror sci-fi by Benson and Moorhead, whose films have been recommended to me by a listener, so that might be worth it, worth a look. And I was intrigued by this one, also coming out 4th of November, My Neighbor Adolf. In, 19, in 1960 South America, a Holocaust survivor convinces himself that his new neighbor is Hitler in disguise. That sounds incredible. Yeah, that's all, that jumped out to me. Like, okay. Uh, 11th of November, Wakanda Forever, we've already discussed. See what happens with that. Um, 18th of November, the, the Menu, a comedy horror where a young couple go to an exclusive restaurant on a remote island where the chef has prepared some nasty surprises. Uh, Ray Fiennes, Annie Taylor-Joy, Nicholas Holt, getting good reviews. Confess Fletch, which is a reboot of the Fletch series made famous in the 80s by Chevy Chase, this time with John Hamm, and supposedly more like the books and less of a star vehicle for like a comedy actor, which is what Chevy Chase did with it. Uh, Armageddon Time, which is a drama starring Anne Hathaway, Anthony Hopkins, and Jeremy Strong from Succession. 23rd of November, Bones and All, which is an indie drama starring Timothée Chalamet and Taylor Russell. That's one of those ones that's getting rave reviews at the festivals. There's a new Disney animation coming out called Strange World. Don't know much about it. And on the 25th of November, which obviously that's the date of our uh, of our next episode, but so we won't be able to discuss it until much later, um, Matilda. It's not quite a remake. It's the film of the musical of the film of the book. Re. Yeah. So whatever, man. Uh, so yeah, those are, those are the new films. I mean, I, mean, I think the my my neighbor Adolf jumps out, doesn't it? It's something that might be an interesting watch. I don't know mm-hmm. how big a release that's going to get, but let's see. Um, so after in terms of uh, of new films, what new films have you seen lately, if any, mate? Oh, have you been to the cinema to see anything or? Nah. Not really had the time, and it's just yeah. much cheaper to just watch it when it comes around on the telly, especially given how hit and miss the films have been recently. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, I don't want to go see the new. What's the new Marvel film that's coming out? Not Marvel. I don't want to go see Black Adam when it's no. potentially going to get shit reviews. I'm I'll just def- open up. Definitely wait for the reviews, yeah. I'll open up the Netflix the now and have a wee look. Um, again, been watching a lot of TV, just started Killing Eve. Um, oh, yeah. What else have we been watching? Um, Trying to be more at the House of the Dragon, been watching the Undateables. Yeah. It's just so much quicker to stick on an episode than yeah, no, the entire mean, film. Because it's only you only need to fit in thirty minutes to an hour, right? Been doing a lot of night shift as well, so yeah, sleeping till like three in the afternoon. Good Netflix is deciding not to fucking load. I'm glad I pay money for actual internet. Richard Branson, you fucking albino cunt. While you uh, while you address that technical issue, shall I talk about a couple of new films? I watched? please do because I'm going to stab someone. <laughs> that was uh, you're you're saying word for word what I was saying about Virgin at the weekend. Um, so I went to see one film at the cinema, which was The Woman King. Uh, mentioned this last month that it was coming oh, yeah. out. This is set in 1823 Dahomey, which was a kingdom in Africa that existed for about 300 years until 1904. It was part of uh, what we know today as present day Benin. It takes a real life character from that era, King Gezo, who became the new king of that uh, of that empire, essential kingdom. Uh, and the real-life army of women that they had, sort of uh, elite women warriors they had, um, those those are real. Those actually existed, but then they tell a completely fictional story in that setting. This is a made-up story, in a, and it's you know it, it's not trying to suggest that you know these events happened. It said this is an interesting uh, you know time in history. Let's tell a fictional story set in that time. Um, 
The kingdom is threatened by a neighboring state, the Oyo Empire. It's got tangled up in the slave trade because of the money-making opportunities. Uh, it's kind of an arms race. If you're not in the slave trade, you're not going to become as rich and powerful as your neighbors, and then they'll swallow you up, is, is what they're saying. Viola Davis plays sort of the grizzled, experienced general of the Agoji, which is the female warrior army. Um, they have to deal with that military threat from the neighboring empire. You also have some new recruits who are being trained up, and there's some plot twists from the histories of some of the characters in the story, so it all joins together, the personal and the and the bigger story. You get some good, solid battle scenes. There's some good characters. It's well acted, and you get a real emotional punch from the way some of the character arcs play out. Um, a lot of the characters are kind of archetypes, not like stereotypes, not like cartoonish, but they are kind of classic characters. You've got your tough and world-weary general. You've got your eager new recruit. You've got the more experienced soldier showing them the ropes. But I don't mind that. I like all that. And I guess it, it's it's novel and different that it's black women getting to play these parts. You don't normally get to see that. And I think a lot of women, are, and especially black women, are looking at it going, well, that's fun, getting to see someone a bit more like me doing fun stuff in movies, right? And yeah. the cast are having an absolute ball. Lashana Lynch is in it as one of the experienced soldiers. I've never seen an actor having such a good time playing a part since Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men. Um, it's like, God, you are having a good time playing that character. And I, you know, you know, when someone's enjoying playing the part that much, it made me enjoy it more. It was, you know, it was, it's a good movie. And John, Boy John Boyega is very good as the young king because he, he doesn't just play like, sometimes he played these like young, young kings as like, very bit cartoonish Rats and yeah, yeah yeah and he does it very nicely because he's a nice mixture there is some youthful inexperience to his character and he is a bit of like a preening peacock yeah but he's also quite shrewd you can see he's you can see the the cogs whirring in his head like he's thinking do you know what i mean like he's calculating so he was good um and i enjoyed seeing a historical setting i wasn't familiar with you know um if i have a criticism i think you have to wait a little while for the action to hot up and when the big battle scenes come, they're good. They are good, but they're not they're not great. They're not all-time classic action scenes. They lack a little bit of pop and ferocity, in my humble opinion. Now, that's strange, because Gina Prince-Blythewood is the director. She did The Old Guard, that um, uh, Netflix film with Charlize Theron, and the action in that is terrific. So I don't know why it felt a bit muted to me in this. Um, so what that means is it was a good, entertaining movie, and certainly the emotional register of the, of, the, of the characters was good, but it just didn't... Maybe this is setting the bar too high, but the classic period action dramas are things like Gladiator, Apocalypto, Last of the Mohicans, right? This is not on that level in terms of just the, the thrill of the action scenes. So decent, not a classic. Um, now, obviously, there's been discussion about the historical accuracy of the, of the film. Now, first of all, it's telling a fictional story. So I know that can sometimes be a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card. And I think what they wanted to focus on was that back then you actually had women in much more equal roles and in African society than you would normally expect. And they wanted to show that. And I think that's fair enough. But they do gloss over to make it a more kind of straightforward story where you can root for one side against the other. I think they glossed over a little bit about what Dahomey was really like at that time because they were in an imperial power themselves. Fair enough that neighboring empire was invading people and taking over their land and their people. But Dahomey was doing that as well. And, and they were when they took over an area, they would sell people into slavery for money and power. And while this film does address the fact that this they were in the slave trade, it kind of it kind of suggests that they're a little bit caught up in it because that's you know, if they don't, then they're gonna they're gonna be left behind rather than they were one of the dominant countries in the region. Um so I think they're doing that so that you've got a good guy to root for a little bit more in this story and the truth is more complex than that. 
I don't think what they've done with the history is anything like as bad as Braveheart, and it's fucking much better than 300, which was an absolute disgrace. But I do think I took a couple of points off my rating of the film for the way they did gloss over the real history a little bit. It's always a shame. I think being truer to the real history would have been better for the story, but I don't think it ruined the film, unlike a lot of people who, frankly, have been review-bombing this film. At one point, before it had actually been released in a lot of territories, it, it had a uh, an average review on IMDb of 4.2 out of 10, which suggests to me that the usual cunts and Russian bots were trying to pile on. And I've read some reviews that came out later that give the film 1 out of 10 because it's not historically accurate, and I think that's over the top. The, the lack of historical accuracy in, in some aspects does not drop this down to 1 out of 10. I think that's bollocks. I think it's a good movie. It could have been a great movie. I enjoyed it. Um, and I think it's worth a watch. So that's what I thought of that. Um, has that given you time to find from your Netflix lists? I've actually watched seen? fuck all this month. I've really? realised I've gone through my entire history and realised I've not watched a single fucking film. I know. Well, that's that for your... Uh, for your uh, uh, your resolution this month that you didn't manage to see uh, other than the films that you know we're about to for, talk about the, yeah, the but, yeah yeah um yeah it's been a bit of a quiet month I, well, to be fair i watched a bit of a soft core pornographic film the other week when rangers lost seven one in uh, liverpool <laughs> that was a bit of a fucking pumping wasn't it <laughs> yeah. not napoli who was it liverpool liverpool yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah the only team that could lose that badly to liverpool this season um yeah. okay um well look I, the thing is, we talk about how you try have to try and fit film watching into your busy lives. We're not professional critics. We can't just go and watch all the movies. We've got jobs and lives, and, and I think that's a reflection of that. So there's no finger pointing here. Um, I did watch another film. It wasn't in the cinema because it was a Netflix release. That's the new film Blonde with Anna Diarmas as Marilyn Monroe. Oh, it's meant to be shy. I hated this film. Oh, dear. Now, now let's say Anna Diarmas is very, very good as Marilyn. Her performance is excellent, Okay. Some people were saying stuff about her accent. I thought she was... I didn't, I didn't have a problem with her accent at all. I think maybe once or twice there was a tiny bit of her Cuban accent twang comes through. But on the whole, I thought she was very good. She looked and sounded like Marilyn. And I think not just an impersonation. I think she did a very good performance as the character. And I think there are some scenes inserting her into famous scenes that Marilyn Monroe played in films and famous sort of incidents from Marilyn Monroe's life like appearances that she made at premieres and stuff and they're brilliant that was honestly that was excellent that was really very good um, and I like this director he did a film called uh, Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford oh, that yeah. was superb the problem is right that Jesse James and cowboy characters from the Wild West, you can do whatever you like with them. Do you know what I mean? Those those stories have been retold so many times in so many different ways. We talked about this before. Historical accuracy does not matter one fuck in films about the Wild West. It does matter with a major historical figure from the 20th century like Marilyn Monroe. I mean, she's been hugely written about. She's been hugely filmed. She's gave She gave interviews. We know what she was like. So to retell her story in this totally fictionalized way is inappropriate. I hated pretty much every creative and narrative choice this film made. Um, a lot of it, in order to try and make it all seem disjointed and disconnected, like she's going through like a lot of mental health issues, it detracted from the story because you didn't really know what was going on from one scene to the next. You had to stop and go, oh, hang on, is this where is this where she's doing, is this the early 50s, is this the late 50s? And I think it takes you out of the film. I, I know sometimes that is to kind of have that dreamlike quality can be really good. It didn't work here. Early on, it massively fictionalizes two of her relationships in a way that one doesn't add anything to the story or her character, and two, because it's so obviously fucking untrue, it made me not trust anything else the film was trying to say about Marilyn. 
And in fact, the truth of what, you know, a lot of Marilyn's life is more interesting than the cartoonishly awful shite that they inserted into this film. For example, her marriage to Arthur Miller, they basically made up some shit about her and Arthur Miller when there was some real life stories about why that marriage didn't work, which would have been much more interesting to portray in the story. She, he was affected by the McCarthyist witch hunts while they were married. Yep, they had an affair for a while before they got married. They grew apart for a number of reasons. That would have been far... It would have been better to tell tell it how it happened. Do you know what I mean? Um, disputed facts about her childhood are presented as fact, which undermines it, which is weird because they've created this scenario in which some of what's going on is a bit dreamlike and Marilyn may be having a breakdown. So her version of events could have been portrayed that way. For example, it's not known you know, for real, whether her mother actually tried to kill her. But Marilyn said a couple of times that her mum tried to kill her. And Arthur Miller in interview said, yeah, Marilyn says her mum tried to kill her. Do you know what I mean? So it's yeah. possible to portray that happening. But the way they did it was, I, I don't think enough effort was gone into writing this properly. And I think it's because it comes from a very fictionalised novel about her life, which was criticised for all the stuff I've just said. Everyone criticised the original novel for that. So I think they were onto a loser from the beginning. There's been a lot of discussion about it, the, the film being very sexually explicit. I don't think that was really the issue, although there was a scene with JFK which pushed it to beyond reason and didn't make a lot of sense. I think the problem was it reduced all of Marilyn's life to this kind of disjointed nightmare and it left things out that would have made for a better story. It put things in which were known to be 100% true. And I think it's just everything about it was just wrong. I think that... For, for example, if you've got a major part of, of, of someone's life where you don't actually know what happened, so you can speculate, you can make a good film like that. One Night in Miami. We don't know what those four people actually did, said and did that night, yeah. but you can tell a really interesting story by imagining, and that's okay. But this, it's just, it's absolutely all over the place. I hated it. An example of how out of whack this film is in what it was trying to do. Early on, Marilyn's mum shows her a picture of Clark Gable and says, that's your dad. Now, in real life, Marilyn, for a time, did believe that Clark Gable was her dad because someone in the film industry did get her mum pregnant. That much we do know, right? And, she, and for a while, she believed it was Clark Gable. Now, you could use your imagination and build on that. That's not a problem, right? Why does this film, therefore, completely fail to mention that in Marilyn's last film, she co-starred with Clark Gable? Why would you not fucking do that? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and the ending of the film relies on a plot point that absolutely did not happen, right? And this isn't a spoiler. Marilyn Monroe died of a drug overdose, right? And it relies on a plot point to explain what happened, you know, when, when she died that didn't happen. And it's a massively reductive portrayal of Marilyn Monroe's mental issues, career, what she thought of herself for something that we know didn't happen. Why? Why, why would you do something that we, we all believe? I think we all believe that mental health should be portrayed in a nuanced way these days. So to see it portrayed in this cartoonish way, also in a way that which we know is untrue and didn't happen, it just does the whole thing a fucking massive disservice. Um, it's just the whole thing is fucking dishonest and unethical. Is it well made? Yeah. It, you know, music, the music's good. There's some interesting shots. There are some individual scenes which work very well, but the, 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 the underlying intentions of the film are fundamentally dishonest and wrong. And the only one, the only person who comes out of this in any, with any, uh, credit is Anna Diarmas and to a lesser extent Adrian Brody who's good as Arthur Miller one of her husbands um, but everyone else needs to give their head a shake they, they fucked up this movie and I it, I haven't hated a movie as much as this for a very long time so well, I, I advise you to give that a big fucking swerve yes um, so yeah 
Now, the next thing we tend to talk about in episode resolutions, now we just mentioned yours, mate, that due to just the, the, the challenges of just day-to-day life, you haven't watched any new films apart from, you haven't watched any films apart from the ones we're doing as features. Um, my resolution is to continue 2022 A Kubrick Odyssey, uh, in which we look at uh, each of Kubrick's films month by month in chronological order. We're getting towards the end of the year, so we're getting towards the end of the list. 1980s The Shining. Now, this is one of his most talked about films. Now, you've you've seen The Shining a number of times, haven't you, mate? Yes. Where does it sit for you in the uh, uh, the uh, Kubrick pantheon? See, I struggle with Kubrick because the first hour of Full Metal Jacket is Kubrick's best bit of cinema, in my opinion. It's just my favourite. It's it's it relies a lot on. Um, What's his name? R.L. Ermey? Is that his name? Yeah, Arlie Ermey. Uh, Arlie Ermey, yeah. Yeah, the, the drill instructor, yeah. It relies a lot on him, but it's still my favourite, I think. It's brilliant, and it sets up what could be a really interesting film, and then it just kind of goes to shit, just because yeah. it's, it's, it's a bit of a kind of lame um, Vietnam-style film towards the end. It's not terrible, but the first hour is impeccable. Yeah. Whereas I feel like The Shining doesn't have that kind of just hour of being unbelievably good, comp- yeah. as good as... Um, the first hour of Full Metal Jacket, but on the whole, I think it's still, I think it might be Kubrick's best, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, it's very creepy, it's quite scary, Um, but I think it, it's, I think it's very good. I think it's, I think it's his best in terms of overall, because it doesn't, it doesn't falter and fall off as much as Full Metal Jacket does. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, some people will talk about 2001 being his best film. My favourite film of his is Barry Lyndon, but I mean, The Shining is, uh, well, I mean, we'll, 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 you know, we'll come to what I thought about it. I think it's technically flawless. I think it is, in terms mm. of cinematic presentation, in terms of a director saying, this is what I want to do it and this is how I'm going to do it, it's absolutely on the absolute top level. He's done some incredible things in this film. And it's obviously one of his most talked about films, partly because it was really divisive among Stephen King fans. A lot of Stephen King fans hated this film because he changed it a lot from the original novel. Um. For me, right, it is different from the novel, and I think the novel is amazing. It's, I think it's possibly Stephen King's best best book, and or certainly the, my favourite of the books of his that, that I've read. Um, but I like the film, even though it's very different. I just see them as two different entities. Do you know what I mean? Um, but interestingly, here's a fun fact for you. The first ever Razzies ceremony there, the, the Golden Raspberry Awards for the worst films or worst performances in films of a given year, that was the first ever year. Most of that small initial group of voters in the Razzies were all Stephen King fanboys, and they because they hated this so much, they gave Stanley Kubrick a worst director nomination at the Razzies. So Stanley Kubrick has a Razzie nomination for worst director for The Shining. Where? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's like, wow, you can disagree with the choice, but come on, that's one of the worst. That's the worst director. Fuck you, buddy. You know. Um, for me, I agree with you. I think the film is really unsettling from the off. Just as just as um, Jack Nicholson is, you know, you get that overhead shot of, of the car driving to the hotel for his job interview. He, from from the opening, you're like, oh, this, do you know what I mean? You just feel you just feel off from the beginning. You know, it builds an incredible atmosphere, which it more or less sustains more or less throughout the film. It's obviously got these really famous uh, from Stanley Kubrick's films. It's got some of his most quotable or, or kind of you know famous individual scenes, hasn't it? You got the blood sort of pouring in the corridor. You've got the kids saying red rum. You've got Jack Nicholson saying, here's Johnny as he tries to smash down the door. Um, it's got sort of an electronic score, which is suitably disturbing, really, sh- you know, really quite shaky. First time I ever saw this film, I was quite young, scared the shit out of me. Um, but like I say, most people agree the film is 
pretty much flawless in terms of cinematic technique, but not everyone loves his creative choices. Um, the first thing that gets debated is that it downplays the personal demons and sort of alcoholism of the central character, which was one of King, Stephen King's main themes in the book. Stephen King meant this book as kind of an allegory for addiction. This guy is a decent bloke, but because he is a recovering alcoholic, it means he's done stuff in his past that he's ashamed of. That demon, that monkey is always on his back. Do you know what I mean? Um, which is not surprising given Stephen King's own personal issues with addiction. Just Kubrick had a very different different concern. So he made it more about almost like obsession. Mm. You know, because Stanley Kubrick, especially later on, it was you know, it took him five years to get this film made. It took him seven years to get Full Metal Jacket made and 12 years to get um, this film after that made. He, he was almost used to get paralyzed by his own brain. He would get obsessive about detail. Do you know, he'd spend... There's this brilliant story about the trailer for Full Metal Jacket. He spent weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks with the voiceover actor doing the trailer for Full Metal Jacket. Do you know what I mean? He, he would get absolutely bogged down in details. He couldn't... Um, there's a brilliant story about how he was obsessed with having all this stuff organised. Uh, and he was... So he would buy lots of stationery from Ryman Stationers because right. he's in the UK. And he actually wrote to Ryman Stationers asking them for like information about the different options and what they could do with their stationery to help him organize his stuff better. And I think for him, all that stuff with the typewriter and Jack Nicholson's character struggling with himself in the film, that's Kubrick's own talking about it being obsessive and, and, and how that can kind of drive you mad. So Kubrick wanted to make a film about someone being driven mad, but about something totally different to what Stephen King wanted to write about. And either you like what he did or you don't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Also, Kubrick likes, he did this with 2001 as well, he likes to, to make things less specific in the movie because then the whole audience can get, you know, if someone goes, well, I've never had a problem with alcoholism, fuck this guy. Do you know what I mean? Whereas Kubrick's like, anyone would be fucked in this hotel. Do you know what I mean? Anyone's personal demons would come out in this hotel. Do you know what I mean? He wasn't that interested in the ghost elements, which some people don't like. Um, he changed the Halloran character. Um, you know, the black guy's the head chef. Yeah. He's really good with uh, with the kid, uh, with Danny at the beginning, uh, and he comes back later. Um, Kubrick changed the story, cut the storyline quite short, quite abruptly. Some viewers find that frustrating. I don't know what you thought about that, because he's in and then he's out. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I remember reading the book, and it seems like he has a bit more of a prominent part in the book, and I didn't see it as much in the film. Yeah, because when he comes back to the hotel, he gets involved a lot more with Danny and Danny's mum. You know, spoiler alert, Jack Nicholson goes nuts in the hotel and tries to kill his family. Halloran comes back, partly because he can communicate telepathically with Danny, which you do see in the film, to be fair. But then his involvement is much shorter and much less when he does get to the hotel. It's a, it's a choice. It's a choice Kubrick made. And obviously he changed the ending, which frankly was a lot about what would work with current special effects. Apparently he wanted to do something with the maze coming alive which you could do now, but you couldn't do then. It just, it was people pushing bits of hedge around. He said, it didn't look right. We're not doing it. Hmm. Um, so he did something different with the ending. And for me, I think it's a case of it. Most of what he did, I'll come to a couple of things that I, I couple of things I, I cool with. The vast majority of what he did was worked as a film. It just tells a different story to what Stephen King's trying to tell. And you take your choice. Yeah. What I would say, what, what, what did you think of the casting? What did you think of the casting of Shelley Duvall as the wife and Jack Nicholson as, as the main character? I think Shelley Duvall was a perfectly decent cast, like casting, because she plays the part very well. You know, she, she kind of plays that stereotypical um, 
character whose partner's become a bit of a psychopath, but yeah. she does well in the film. I kind of agree with Stephen King's point about casting Jack Nicholson because the whole point of The Shining is that the writer just seems like a normal guy and then he just completely loses it when he gets to the the yeah. hotel. And Jack Nicholson's always looked a little bit unhinged. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with that point. Re- regarding Shelley Duval as the wife, I think what a lot of people complain about is that she just seems like this frightened mouse the whole time. Right. Well, I think what Kubrick was trying to do personally when I was watching it is really just trying to drive home how terrified and helpless you would be in that situation. Do you know what I mean? Films, yeah. and, films and books often show people always being brave and knowing what to do in horrific situations. But the truth is that most of us would be like a rabbit in headlights, and that is Kubrick's view of humanity: is come on, guys, you wouldn't you wouldn't deal with this very well. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, so he shows her just being like a rabbit in headlights. She does dig a way out of the situation in in her own way, but sometimes I thought it was a bit. It was like she's just she's almost like oh she drops the knife, fuck off, don't drop the knife. Do you know what I mean? But I think yeah. in reality, people would crumble and stumble and make mistakes in that situation. And Kubrick's. That's that's the way Kubrick portrays humanity. He just does. That's why that shot. It's an amazing shot where Jack Nicholson is looking down at the maze, and you see his point of view of the miniature of the maze. There's a miniature model of it, and then you look down, and you look down, and you look down, and you see two people walking through the maze, and it's the wife and the son in miniature. That's how Kubrick looks at humanity. He's looking from up above and going, "Look at the, those tiny little people in in the maze." That's that's his view of that's his view of the world. Um, there was talk of Jessica Lang being discussed for that part, which I would have liked to have seen. Because Jessica Lang is an amazing mm. actress. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you about Jack Nicholson. The first time I see him, I say, that bloke's going to go mad and attack his family with an axe if he's, le- <laughs> he's left in that hotel for the winter. Do you know what I mean? Um, there were other choices. Uh, Robert De Niro. Uh, I'm not... I, I'm, Having seen Taxi Driver, the audience is already thinking, well, there's a bloke who can go mad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Harrison Ford was considered, but Stanley That would have been a good choice, yeah. Here's an interesting one. Robin Williams was considered for it. Oh. Now, Robin Williams was not seen back then as someone who, who would do stuff outside of comedy. But if we look at what he went on to do since, he's done dramatic roles, he's done comedy roles, he's played people who, who are psychotic and have gone around the twist. Um, that would have been interesting. I think that would have been really interesting. Robert Williams would have, been, would have given his fucking right arm, his hairy right arm, to do a part like this back then. Do you know what I mean? Um, but we'll never know. It's Jack Nicholson. And, and it, Jack Nicholson has become iconic for what he did do in this movie. So we're kind of stuck with it, aren't we? Yeah. But I mean, all in, th- these are quibbles about a film which I still think just works incredibly well. I mean, the twin girls in the, um, in the corridor and the, the blood. I mean, some of that is just so fucking amazingly done very few people have done horror scenes as well as that it's just you know it's he was absolutely at the top of this of his game when he did all of that so that that's where we go with it um yeah definitely one of his best films for me um and obviously one of his most talked about and uh, and controversial now as i always do on this uh, uh in this feature it always inspires an impromptu top 10 and for this month because of the uh the production and background of the shining uh, i've done top 10 film adaptations the original author hated apart from The Shining obviously so these are films that for one reason or another the um, the author of the original novel sort of disowned them uh, Mary Poppins American Psycho Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, The Birds Cool Hand Luke The Witches Midnight Express V for Vendetta 
and the Warriors. Uh, v for Vendetta. Frankly, you could have put any adaptation of an Alan Moore story on here because he hates <laughs> all of them. And I have just noted that there are um, two, um, uh, three, in fact, uh, Roald Dahl adaptations. So obviously he was hard to please when people did films of his uh, of his books as well. But uh, those are all films that I actually like or, or that are seen as good films. And for one reason or another, the, the author hated them. And I think that's a, an example of the the fact that um, films and films and books are different things. And that happens, you know. You could have thrown in a Clockwork Orange or Straw Dogs, but because we'd done them on the pod before, I decided not to put them in. So oh, nice. that's uh, that's our Kubrick entry for this month. We're, we're getting towards the end now because Kubrick starts to take far too long over making his films. And next month we will be doing Full Metal Jacket, which has some interesting talking points, which James has already alluded to, which was a nice preview of what we're going to get into next month. Whoopsies. <laughs> no, no, it's good, mate. It's good that it's good that you uh, it's good that you whetted everyone's appetite. Um, anything else you want to add to the roundup? Uh, no, I think we've covered it. Very good. Well, that's us for this month. Well, apart from the rest of the features, don't switch off. Ba -ba -ba. <laughs>
And before long, he's in Hollywood where he realizes the film business isn't different, that different from his current job and ends up trying to use the money he's collecting to finance a film. The story is part thriller, part comedy as the crime and, and film world, world collide. Um, it's based on an Elmore Leonard novel. He's one of the great American crime writers, even though he started out in Westerns. You may be aware, I don't know, James, that he did um, 310 to Yuma. Which, okay. which they made into a film a couple of times. And obviously Jackie Brown and Out of Sight are based on him, as is the great TV show Justified. He has this kind of sardonic take on crime movies, sort of crime stories. A lot of his stuff is based in Detroit and Miami. He has a distinct style and rhythm to his writing, which isn't really... Re- Sorry, I'll say that again. He has a distinct style and rhythm to his writing, which isn't that easy to get right on screen. So there are some bad and unsuccessful adaptations of his work. Do you know what I mean? It's like we love Elmore Leonard but it takes something special to to get it right on film. Uh, Directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who started out as a cinematographer for the Coen Brothers, and then he went on to do... He he was also the cinematographer on Misery, so good cinematographer, right? He made his film debut with The Addams Family in 1991. He's probably most famous for the Men in Black trilogy. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Barry Sonnenfeld as a director. What about you, mate? Not seeing enough of his stuff to give him a a proper slagging. (laughs) But, yeah, yeah, no, I haven't. Not very uh, familiar with his stuff. Yeah, but you know he's not. I don't think people go, "Oh, Barry Sonnenfeld, he's one of the great directors." Um, yeah. Although yeah. he was a top cinematographer. Um, I mean, the original Men in Black film was good, and, and you know has a nice kind of light tone, which is why I'm surprised. I was surprised I didn't like this originally. Um, Get Shorty was written by Elmore Leonard in 1990 based on his own experiences in Hollywood. He thought he would weave together a classic crime story idea with his real-life experiences trying to get a film made with Dustin Hoffman where he felt like he'd been messed around. So the whole Get Shorty idea, this short actor who's a pain in the ass to deal with, is based on Dustin Hoffman. It's got a cast to die for, Quentin Tarantino uh, was going to direct it. He persuaded John Travolta to play the lead. Um... And then you've got Danny DeVito, Gene Hackman, Dennis Farina, James Gandolfini, Delroy Lindo, and various star cameos. I mean, fucking hell. I mean, that group of people I would watch in anything, really. Yeah, there's a lot there, don't there? Yeah. So, for you, mate, what did you think? I mean, I assume you like that cast, but what did you think of the tone and the storyline? Is this sort of thing up your street? Um, yeah, I suppose so. I thought it was an interesting cast. You know, there's a lot of big names in there and a lot of actors that I've enjoyed in the past, so... Yeah, um, I think it would have to be a a very bad storyline for me to not think this was up my street just looking at the cast. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I have to say, I, I liked it better this time. I really did. I'm very impressed with Travolta's performance. It's a really nicely balanced sort of playing of the part that he manages to achieve, he, and, and he carries the film. He's, he's a low-level gangster, He's a debt collector, so he beats people up if they don't pay their bills. And making that character likable is not easy, and I think he achieves it. Um, the fact that he's such a film nerd obviously made me warm to him, because I am also a film nerd. There's a bit where he watches uh, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, and he's so chuffed by the the you know watching this great movie. He's got this big smile on his face, makes him very likable. I like the bit where, having beaten up James Gandolfini, he knows James, that character's an ex-stuntman, and he's trying to, he's like saying, look, I've almost got to beat you up because you've been sent to beat me up, but I'm trying to, he's trying to get him on side. And he starts talking to him about all the films he did as a stuntman. I, I liked that stuff. I liked the way he kind of, I found him very engaging. Yeah. Um, I like Gene, Ka- Gene Hackman. I mean, Burr, Gene Hackman, but he, he's, that was a fun character. He's a dickhead and he has various shenanigans and it's kind of, it's kind of, he's an arsehole, 
so you didn't mind, for example, when he gets beaten up by the mafia bloke, you quite enjoyed seeing him get his comeuppance. But he was always watchable when he was getting up to something or trying to be tough. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed him. Dennis Farina's great. James Gandolfini, you know. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I, I definitely liked it second time around. I honestly, I, I couldn't tell you why it didn't sit with me the first time. This is it should have been up my street, and this time it was. It was it was good. It's um, it it's got a nice balance. I think it would have been a great film. Say if Tarantino had made it, I think it would have been even better. Barry Sonnenfeld is good, but not the best, right? Um, but I think he he held this up really well. It's got a nice light touch to it, which makes the whole thing work. It's um, what about the ending? Some people didn't like the 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 way that the way the film ends. That it was a bit deflating, a bit of a letdown. Do you think the uh, ending was okay? I don't know. I found the film kind of it was really intriguing. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't. I didn't think it was like a pure explosive kind of film compared to what I'm used to, but. I suppose any ending like that after a film like Get Shorty would feel a little bit deflated at the end, if that makes sense. Yeah. Where I there's mean, lots of like twists and turns and you're trying to like figure out what's going on. Well, not suppose not twists and turns, but like back and forth and all the all the kind of, it felt quite, not erratic, is that the right word? Uh, maybe. Um. Well, for me anyway. And I suppose any ending would probably feel a bit odd at the end of Get Shorty because I found it quite an unusual film just because of the kind of subject matter. Yeah, I mean, I think some people kind of have said, without spoilers, what happens to the film is that the way the story ends up being resolved is that is rather than seeing it actually get resolved, it just cuts to the story being resolved in the movie they make of the story. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. w- what it implies is that they fix, you know, they, they get to the end of the story that's happened and then they make a movie based on that. So... Uh, the you know uh, one of the characters uh, you know Dennis Freeman's character ends up being played by Harvey Keitel in the movie so Harvey Keitel is playing himself so it's kind of a film within a film at the end and some people looked at that and said well you didn't really know how to finish the film did you so you, that's kind of a cop out whereas actually I think the whole thing is kind of Elmore Leonard and, and Barry Sonnenfeld who makes him like going guys sit back and enjoy it this is just a fun ride do you know what I mean it's kind of there. There are films where someone falls down the stairs. It's terrible and painful, and you kind of you clutch your 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 your, your, your fist, your mouth, and go, "Oh my god, he's fallen down the stairs!" I know this James Gandolfini falls down the stairs, and it's funny and it's okay. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of it's fun. You, you there's there's a bit of jeopardy, but you kind of mostly just having fun with the characters, really. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's 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 kind of daft, isn't it? Yeah, you're not you're not supposed to take all of it very seriously. Yeah. There's, there's this fun bits where John Travolta has been has been rent he's rented a car at the airport and he's not got a car that he liked. It's a people carrier. They I think they call them what are they called minivans in America. He doesn't like it, but he's trying to style it out. He doesn't like to you know he's 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 trying to look good to these Hollywood people. So he he basically bluffs to to Danny DeVito as the as the actor they're trying to get for the movie that oh this is the this is the really trendy thing. Everyone's driving these now. And uh, Danny DeVito is convinced that that's true. And then at the end, everyone's driving one of those minivans. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. like lots of little kind of, it has a, it, it, it's, I like, I think it really helps if you like films that take the piss out of the Hollywood film industry. Do you know what I mean? Because if you like that, this has got lots of affectionate kind of digs at Hollywood. And obviously quite a few people from Hollywood have said, oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll join in. Do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, this is a, this is a fun ride. It's not, it's not earth shattering. Um, it's you know Elmore Leonard has done darker stuff than this, um, but this is this is him in kind of let's have a bit of fun. Do you know what I mean? And I think it was. I think it was a fun movie to watch. Yeah, I, I would agree. So uh, I think it's a good job I gave it a second chance because I've been essentially been de- denying myself 
the pleasure of enjoying a, a movie that's right up my street. So I'm glad I glad I put that right. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserves to have more critical and commercial success and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month, in keeping with our second chance cinema theme, we look at a film which many consider to be underrated but which didn't grab us first time around. We're giving it another go to see if it deserves to join the ranks of cherished films that more people should see. The hidden gem for episode 30 is Alex Garland's Annihilation. So James, apologies, I've spoken for both of us there. The reality is that it didn't grab me first time around, which is why I nominated it for um, uh, for, for Hidden Gem Second Chance. Have you seen it before? Or what was your initial impression? Um, I hadn't seen it before, and initially... I don't know, I think I understood why it was Hidden Gem. You know, I think it, it didn't really grasp me when I read the kind of plot behind it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. You know, a film has to kind of grab me, um, yeah. and it didn't do that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of background, there's a novel called Annihilation, which uh, which was liked by a lot of people. Alex Garland is a writer of things like The Beach, uh, and he wrote the script for Judge Dredd, or the, the Dredd, the Judge Dredd reboot, which we liked very much. He's gone on to direct his own stuff. He directed Ex Machina, which I liked a lot. Um, the the novel is about and and the film is about something called the shimmer where a meteor seems to have hit part of of the earth and has created an anomaly uh it is the colors are strange people go in and you and uh the radios don't work people come out and they've been changed anything inside that area has changed animals are evolving in different directions the whole world is changing it's possibly this is an evolutionary event that could change the whole world Another a group of people with their own history and challenges uh, go in and uh, have to investigate what's been going on in there, including the main character, Natalie Portman, whose husband has already been in there uh, with dire consequences. Um, it had some funding issues. The original studio pulled out uh, and ended up uh, getting funding from Netflix, um, which meant it had a bit of a hybrid approach to um, uh to its release because Netflix funded it but it was originally scheduled to be shown in the cinema it did get a cinema release and not a very good one so it's seen as a financial flop however it's been on Netflix for a few years now and it's you know if they'd just done it straight to Netflix they'd be talking about it as a film that's been quite widely seen um it sorry bears comparisons to things like Solaris where people go into a strange anomaly that seems to be alive and seems to have an intelligence of its own and people's own history come come into the into the story and and get blown out of all uh, of all proportion. There's also a film that I watched and talked about last year on the podcast, which is Color Out of Space, which is an H.P. Lovecraft story. Uh, they made a film out of it with Nicolas Cage about a strange phenomenon, which with colors that you've never seen before, um, which starts to change and 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 blow apart the biology of of anyone who comes into contact with it. So you've got this strange sci-fi unsettling maybe a bit of horror element to it and central character is natalie portman as a biologist used to be in the army her husband uh is played by oscar isaac who is still in the army and was one of a group of people sent in and only he came out and he's been changed by it uh you've got uh, jennifer jason lee is like the leader of the program who wants to go in as well and you've got various sort of scientists and other people played by uh, People like Tessa Thompson and the girl from Jane the Virgin uh, and, and you know a number of other actors go in as part of this group 
to uh, see what's going in and weird shit happens once they get there. First of all, James, what genre do you think this this film is? Annihilation. Do you think it's just straight up sci-fi or do you think there's something else going on? I suppose you could consider it... I don't know. Now that you've put me on the spot, it's... I suppose it's a bit it's a bit thrilling. I suppose it's a bit it is mostly sci-fi obviously, but yeah, I mean you always I get that put me on the spot there. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I mean you, you always get that a bit with sci-fi, don't you? Because sci-fi is basically is isn't just a genre. It's basically sci-fi is anything that's set in a futuristic setting or where something comes from space. So, you know, we, we it's a recognizable sci-fi storyline in that something has come from space, landed on earth and changed things, right? But apart from that, sci-fi could mean a lot of things. It could be sci-fi action. It could be sci-fi horror. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's like, so it, nothing is ever just sci-fi, really. Apart, you know, one, like when you talk about hard sci-fi, like 2001, yeah, sure, that's just sci-fi. But, you know, this is, for me, I thought it had a bit of horror elements, a bit of like psychological thriller because people are kind of losing their minds. It's, It's got a very, it's, I mean, it's, visually it's amazing i thought visually it showed some things that i've not seen before and i thought that was very interesting to see it's got some horror elements because creatures come bursting out the dark and attack people and things like that so there's elements of horror to it and obviously there's stuff about that's going on in people's minds you know people are being freaked out by the environment they find themselves in um what did you think of the pacing of the film found it quite slow See, I'm, I found it quite slow. See, I'm not against slow films. Um, I just think if you're going to make, it, they're harder to do than than um, than than pacey films. Do you know what I mean? If you've got if you've got quick scenes and cliffhangers, it's you know more directors can handle a, a, a faster paced film than can handle a slow paced film. Do you know what I mean? As long as the script is is solid. Um, so I think there were times where this did drag. Um, and to be honest, right? I'll, I mean, I'll come out and make a statement. You can tell me whether you agree or not. I think Alex Garland is a terrific screenwriter, but he's only a decent director. Do you know what I mean? Um... For example, I thought Dread was amazing. I thought it was very well written. I thought the ideas in it were terrific. I thought it was really well done. Someone else directed that and added a visual flair and all of that. So the direction really added to Alex Garland's script. And I think as a director, what he did here was was all right. But there were times where it could have been. I think. I think a stronger director could have handled the pacing better. And I think there's bits like there's a that strangely evolved crocodile bursts out and attacks people, and there's the bear attack, or the creature turns out to not just be a bear in, in the night. And I think those were they were well done, but not brilliantly done. Do you know what I mean? And I, yeah. And I, and I think as I think people have said similar things about Charlie Kaufman and Aaron Sorkin, where these are award-winning writers who've gone on to direct the films themselves because they want to control the film that gets made it's understandable right but they're not always the best people to direct their stuff in my opinion yeah no your point about him being an excellent screenwriter i think holds true he's written some very good and interesting films but to be fair to him he's only directed what two films and a couple episodes yeah he yep. really directed some episodes of devs and men is that yep. a film yeah yeah so he's done. I think he's directed three sort of big feature films. So uh, he's probably still finding his feet because it's interesting that he, I thought he was a young guy, but he's actually you know he's in his fifties and he's written a load of films. Um, yeah, he's had a, he's had a long career as a writer and he's now moved into directing. So may, maybe you're, maybe that's a fairer point that you're making that he's at the moment not 
maybe he you know maybe he will develop as a director into someone who can you know absolutely be, you know master it um whereas i think kaufman and sorkin have made several films now and have proven that they're better writers than they are directors maybe alex garland will, will continue to step up um see the thing about the writing right is that you know have you heard you've heard of christopher mcquarrie right uh, yes, uh, Mission Impossible. Yeah, yeah. He directs Mission Impossible. He wrote the script for The Usual Suspects. He's an Oscar-winning screenwriter. And he said something amazing about the Mission Impossible films. He says, actually, having a completed script means fuck all when you're directing Mission Impossible. Because the logistics of making a film like that mean that you really just go in with an idea of your story and you, and, and you have to change the script so many times that the orig- having there's no point in trying to write a complete script, page 1 to 120 or whatever it is, of, of Mission Impossible because things are going to change so much for that movie. And I know those are exceptional types of film. But the the process of making a film with the director changes the script anyway. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, great writer-directors can follow that, can do that. And great writers can work with great directors. And that second pair of eyes makes the film work perfectly or work really well. And I think if you're, if you're, if you're still finding your feet as a director, that might be why... This film has, for example, some plot holes. Yeah. Like, back at base, everyone wears protective suits around people who've been in the Shimmer. But then when they send the team into the Shimmer, they don't wear any protective suits. And it changes their DNA. Surprise, surprise. Why the fuck did you do that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, There's also... One of the characters just walks off and turns into a flower. Now, I I totally believed her motivation. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I totally believed that... You know, within the story, can can any of those things that happen in that story actually happen in real life? Can DNA change like that? I don't know, but I'll, I'll go along with it for the movie. Do you know what I mean? So it happening and that character doing that, I'm totally on board with. I thought the motivation of the character at that point was absolutely fine. But because of the pacing and because of probably a few other things, she just walks off and turns into a flower. And I think that could have been... At the end, I went, really? She was just... She was a human five minutes ago. You walk around a corner and find her and she's turned into a flower. Really? Do you know what I mean? And I think I think sometimes those are things like where well, they say, "Look, I want to portray that happening," and I haven't quite haven't quite managed to make it work within the this narrative. But fuck it, we got it. We got to move on. Do you know what I mean? Um, and the, the little things bug me, like that some of the storyline was well. Let me, let me know what you think? Is it too indirect in in some of the storyline? There's an infidelity subplot. Did that did that land for you? Yeah, I didn't feel like that needed to be a thing. You see, if it did need to be a thing, I think they needed to kind of make it a bit more kind of uh, put it in the story a bit better because the I, I, I don't think everything needs to be like exposition. This is happening because of that. Can I just explain this thing to you viewers? Then we can move on to the next scene. I get it. I get why you would want to show and it can work very well where you find out a bit of the story and then you find out a bit more and then by the end of it, you go, oh, wow, that's, do you know what I mean? That's that's been That's been motivating this character all this time. But in the story, right, uh, Natalie Portman suspects that her husband kind of knew she was having an affair and accepted this mission to go into the Shimmer, even though it was you know, knowing it was probably a suicide mission because of the way it affected him to find out what she was doing. And then that's why she goes in. That's why she, she feels like she owes it to him to go in and, and, and see what happened to him. And she's almost, you don't know whether she's punishing herself, you know, whether it's, you know, whether this is an explosion of self-destructive behavior. And I thought, it's there, but it hasn't quite been knitted together in the storyline. Do you know what I mean? And it's weird that I would say that I think Alex Garland's a terrific director because those are kind of story problems. But I think they're story problems that should have been fixed in a in the writing-directing process. So that, those are my nitpicks with the movie. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I enjoyed it better this time around. Um, this is your first time watching it. I enjoyed it better this time around because I thought the fact that I was giving it another chance, it made me concentrate a little harder this time. And it does ask a fair bit from its audience. Um, and I think it's worth watching because it's an interesting story. It's very ambitious and it is a different style to a lot of other films that you would see, which is always worth watching. Do you know what I mean? That's different. You should give it a go. And I did like the cast. Jennifer Jason Lee, Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson, Oscar Isaac. You know, they're watchable watchable actors. I like, I like watching them in films. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad I watched it. Um, what did you think of how it ended? Because there has been criticism of that. Um, I thought it was a bit underwhelming. Mm-hmm. I really liked the idea of the film, like the whole exclusion zone thing. It had kind of Chernobyl vibes. But, yeah, uh, yeah I know what you mean. I thought it was a kind of not that it kind of def, not as deflated as I suppose you could describe Get Shorty. I just thought it was quite intriguing, and I thought, oh, is that it then? You know? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, there were some amazing things. I mean, probably there were some things that happened before the very end, which were pretty impressive. The one of the characters almost turns into like some kind of weird kind of light show. And I thought that was very impressive. I thought I really liked that. And and when you find out what's happened to Oscar Isaac's character, which I don't want to, I don't want to plot spoil. And the way that that's shown is very interesting. And there's there's some stuff I really like. And there's a there's the I like the overall unsettling vibe of the movie. Um, uh, but yeah, I thought it was I thought it was good and worth watching. And I think if you're probably. If you just if you were to sit down and watch this and say you know what I'm actually in the mood for something that's not that doesn't have to have a very long pace and I, I like to immerse myself in in an atmosphere I think you'd enjoy this and then at the end you'd go yeah I, I think they could have found a, a better way to to end end the movie at the very end if I'm honest but uh, yeah I cer- I certainly think it's worth mentioning as a hidden gem. You know, not the best hidden gem we've ever watched, but I, I think people who haven't seen this and maybe have looked on their Netflix and going, I wonder what that's like. Give it a go. If you've got a spare couple of hours, I think, and you like a bit of sci-fi and you like an interesting, you know, this kind of world, the, the way you described it, mate, I think it's worth a look. I mean, would you recommend yeah. it to other people? If you've got a couple of hours, stick it on. Yeah. I think in the pantheon of, like, Netflix movies, I think it's near the top. You know, it's not down the bottom with some of the kind of straight-to-Netflix kind of in, in one ear, out one other that we often uh, criticise. Yeah, no, it was okay, you know. Yeah. yeah. So with that faint praise, well, thank you very much for listening to our Hidden Gem, and we'll move on to the next thing. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films the top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month for Second Chance Cinema, we look at a film which spent years in development hell with one live production project that famously fell through, but which finally got made years later so we can see what the director was trying to do. The one that got away for episode 30 is Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Now, this is Second Chance because it actually did get made. Um, We're going to talk about the production that failed in about the year 2000-2001 with Johnny Depp. but unlike a lot of films where we go 
go and look at this website that's got some like uh, art or original designs. This is what H.R. Giger did for Dune. Look at this and it'll give you an idea of the movie. You've got an idea of the movie because there's a documentary about the Johnny Depp production which shows you actual scenes that were filmed. And you've got the actual film they shot with Adam Driver in 2018 where Terry Gilliam had another go and eventually made the movie. So that's why it's Second Chance Cinema. And that's why we've got a lot of detail for this movie. Um, first of all, what, what did you know about this before before we nominated this, mate? Uh, not a lot. Um, I knew that Terry Gilliam had had a bit of a nightmare hell trying to do this. Um, you know, in pure, it, it just he couldn't get this film made, and it seemed like a film that he really wanted to make. It seemed like up his mental street. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they made it relatively recently with Adam Driver. Yeah, um, twenty eighteen. Yeah, but it, was that Terry Gilliam? Yeah. Oh, so it was him. I thought well, when it, when I was I don't know why I was under the impression that it got made. Uh, by a different director with Adam Driver, I didn't realize he'd actually got to make it. That's no, yeah, my... yeah, that's that that yeah that that is what happened. He he basically had another go, recast it, and uh, and and so you can see, is it exactly what he was trying to do twenty years ago? Not one hundred percent sure, but he did get to do his he did get to do his movie, and it's about someone who thinks they're Don Quixote, and it's about someone else who has to live with that person and, and comes around to their way of thinking. And revolving around that, you know, Don Quixote character, that famous, essentially a character who's out of step with the rest of the world. Everyone thinks he's crazy, but he will not stop dreaming the impossible dream. If you want to, you know, the musical they did at Don Quixote has, you know, you know, has all these sentiments in it. You can see why Terry Gilliam is attracted to Don Quixote, right? Yeah, and there's a certain romanticism to it. I mean, one of my favourite films is uh, the version of Cyrano de Bergerac with. uh, uh, Gerard Depardieu in the main role and there's a, there's an exchange of dialogue in that where someone's looking at the way he lives his life and how you know surely you can't carry on living like this it's impossible and someone says have you read Don Quixote and Gerard Depardieu says read it I've practically lived it do you know what I mean so yeah. there's a romanticism to the Don Quixote character so obviously Terry Gilliam's interested in this kind of thing um a good place to start is the film Lost in La Mancha because what they did was they were making the film uh, The Manicure Don Quixote and they decided to do a making of documentary which if it all gone ahead would have been a special feature on the uh, on the DVD, right? And it shows Terry Gilliam casting, getting his team together, sort of trying to get the best budget that he possibly could and going through the production. But instead of being a making of the movie that they were trying to make, it becomes a, a document of how this film became one that got away. I don't know how much you know about that documentary Lost in La Mancha, mate. Uh, yeah, not so much. Um, it sounds like it was an absolute hell to kind of yeah. get this film made. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, right, this is one of the movies where Terry Gilliam has his reputation for being, oh, yeah, if you try and get Terry Gilliam to make a, make a film, it'll all get out of control and go tits up. And I, th- I personally think that's very unfair. The other film that he gets criticised for on that is, is uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And I think we demonstrated in our feature we did on that as a hidden gem that he didn't let it get out of control. He got fucked by the studio. In this one... Well, why don't I lay out a couple of things that happened, mate, and you can judge for yourself how much Terry Gilliam is at fault for the way it panned out. Should we try that? Yeah. So he wants to make this film, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. It is about a a film director who's kind of given up a little bit on making the kind of movies he wants to make, you know, being creative, and he now just does commercials, yeah? Yeah. He's in Spain filming a commercial using some old stuff that he did before on Don Quixote. One of his early student films was about Don Quixote, and 
rather than go on to make films with that kind of vision and ambition, he's just recycling that sort of those a few of those visuals to make a, a fucking beer commercial or something. So already you've got a character who's kind of fallen away from what he could have been, right? When he gets there, he finds that a the older man who was just a local shoemaker or something that he'd cast to play Don Quixote in his student film has seemingly gone a bit mad. He now thinks he's Don Quixote and roams around the land acting out Don Quixote's life or acting out what Don Quixote did in the famous novel of Don Quixote. He feels like he's a little bit responsible for this man because he feels like maybe it was me who kind of made him made him go around the twist and he ends up getting caught up with him and trying to help him gets caught up in this whole storyline about you know uh the low you know him the, the battles that he's fighting reveal oh there are actually some other things going on here uh reality starts to to blend away and, and maybe he's going crazy himself it's usual terry gilliam stuff um he's got johnny depp in that that main role the director turns you know commercials maker Jean Rochefort, a French actor, who you might have seen in a few things. You recognise him if you saw him. He was he had a famous cameo in a Mr. Bean movie. He's done quite a lot of French movie. And Vanessa Paradis, who Johnny Depp ended up eventually getting together with, was playing the main female part. Um, so it's all very much like you know the kind of thing you'd you'd you'd, you'd expect Terry Gunn to do. But it starts to go wrong quite early on. He's not got all the budget he would like to make for this movie, right? That was always a problem for Terry Gilliam. And he made a decision here. You can tell me whether you think he, he was right, where he said, all right, this is the budget. Let's do as much as we can with this budget. Let's stretch everything as far as we can to see what we can do for this amount of money and be really, really ambitious with this money instead of being slightly ambitious because he had slightly less money. Now, we know why Terry Gilliam did that because he is fucking Don Quixote. Do you know what I mean? He's not just making a movie about him. He is that guy who will take on the impossible challenge. But I mean... What do you think you'd do in that situation, mate? You need 30 million, you've got 20. What do you do? Um, ask nicely, you know. <laughs> There's not a lot you can do when you've tried so hard to get him in. You've been told no a million times and you know that you're only going to get a fraction of the budget that yeah. you need for it. That's a tough situation to kind of be in because... Terry Gilliam, if I'm not mistaken, has made films for a bit of cash before and they've not always made the money because they're interesting ideas. Am I right yeah, in saying that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, when we talked about the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, it was actually its its initial run in the cinema was as good as Rain Man, which was one of the biggest hits of that year, and then they took it out of the the out of the cinemas because of ordering politics. So we'll never know if that movie kept, could actually have done quite well at the box office. And Brazil again for a year, the studio wouldn't show it because the the head of the studio was a prick who didn't like the movie. So we'll still fucking show the movie, mate. Do you know what I mean? Don't just kill it, you know. And the film did well where it did get shown. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's hard to judge. Some of his films have, yes, completely flopped because he makes films which might be hard for a wider audience to digest. 12 Monkeys was a big hit, though. And The Fisher King was a big hit. So he can do it. He can make movies which are big hits, right? Um, what he did here was the budget limitations meant that he didn't have as much time as he would have liked to rehearse with the actors. Because he's got Johnny Depp, who's a big name. Now, Johnny Depp is a big name and, you know, obviously helps him get some of the money for his budget. But he's also a really busy actor and he's only available for this short window of time, right? And that's the same for a lot of the actors he's trying to cast. He's trying to do all the shoot... He's trying to do... This is all, all the time I've got to actually shoot the movie. If anything goes wrong or we get any delays, he might not have enough time to finish the movie. But he's just going to try and see if he can do it. See if he can do it. Um... 
that affects the availability of people to come and start the movie. They don't, he can't get everyone to, he hasn't got time to wait and get everyone together and rehearse for two weeks and then start filming. He has to get people when they're available from, from whatever they finish coming, fly over, start this film. It limits his choice of soundstage because he's got to come in at the last minute. He gets essentially the last soundstage in that part of Spain and it's shitty, but he says we'll work with it. Essentially, he's got no spare time, no spare capacity and no spare budget if too many things go wrong. And then too many things went wrong. Um, they were filming near an air force base, and the production manager had been assured by the by the by the base that they only send the planes out about an hour a day. So apart from that hour, you'll have peace and quiet. For one hour, you'll have jets flying overhead. Apart from that, you can film how you like. When he got there, it turned out the planes were flying out at all hours. So every single shot they tried to do was being ruined by planes flying overhead. Um, they did end up getting delays delays of people joining. Rochefort had an initial illness that he had to wait, that the French actor playing the, the Don Quixote character. He was then injured on um, on set. And then the sets were flooded by freak weather. Now, some of that is just fucking bad luck. Do you know what I mean? He was also screwed over by the insurance company. They said, we're not going to reimburse you for the loss of shooting time and the damage done by the flooding because that's an act of God. That's not covered by our insurance. But they then said the lead actor in the film getting injured during filming because he fell off his horse or whatever, that's an act of God. Therefore, we don't pay out over that, which seems like bollocks to me. An actor getting injured while shooting a movie, that's something that you that's what you insure for. Do you know what I mean? That's like saying someone driving into the back of your car is an act of God and invalidates your car insurance. I mean, would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. Um, and then when this was all happening, right, the insurance company said, no, we're not going to give you more time. We're not going to release any additional funds. We're not going to help you. We're not going to pay out and help you to do this. Um, they actually, part of their insurance policies, they had the rights to the film. They owned the screenplay. So they basically sabotaged the rest of the movie. Hi, Obi. I Sorry, yeah, we've, had, we've got a wee visit on there. Obi's visiting. That's nice. What do you think of Don Quixote? Do you think it was a nightmare to get made? <laughs> do you think they should have given him the 30 million <laughs> <laughs> so so essentially what happened was after all these problems Terry Gilliam said okay well can we go and get some more finance can we do something to finish this movie and the insurance company said no fuck you what we're going to do is we're going to hold on to this script and if someone else wants to make it they have to pay us like 3 million dollars uh, for, for the script so Terry Gilliam's film collapsed and I think for me, right, I think some of it's bad luck, but maybe they should have tried to do a smaller film so that they had some more contingency for things going wrong. I know that's not the way Terry Gilliam does things, but I think that they could have made a movie if they'd done that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. This was, in fact, one of many attempts to make this movie. Apart from Johnny Depp as the uh, as the main part, that for a while they had Ewan McGregor playing him. When they tried it another time, they had Robin Williams at one point. A more recent attempt to make the movie had Jack O'Connell. Uh, other other people who could have uh, played the Don Quixote part, you had uh, John Cleese, Michael Palin, Robert Duvall. John Hurt was actually cast, but then died of cancer uh, before they could start making the movie and had to replace him. So over time... Togum tried to make this film a number of times over 20 years. Aside from this one where he actually started filming, he's tried it with many different productions, many different actors. Finally, in 2018, he got a budget together. I think it was 16 million euros, so it was less money than he had before. But 
special effects had changed. There are things you can do with movies that you couldn't do back then. So maybe it was a little bit easier to, to, to do some of this. He got Jonathan Price to play the older man who thinks he's Don Quixote. He got Adam Driver to play the director who gets caught up. Uh, and Olga Kurlienko is the female lead. Uh, and that film came out in 2018. So we got to see the film that he was trying to make where what happens is, uh, as well as trying to deal with this guy who thinks he's Don Quixote, the main character, Adam Driver, gets faced with this dilemma about maybe he should not sell out and maybe he should be a bit more, you know, a bit more like Don Quixote and, and try and go out and do something more creative with his life, you know, instead of just kind of making making beer commercials for arseholes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which is a very Terry Gilliam theme. Have you seen the finished version of the film? Um, most of it, yeah. What, what did you think of what they eventually made? I think because you've been waiting that long for it, I felt like they kind of, I don't know, I felt like there wasn't actually as much enthusiasm as there should have been. Do you get yeah. that vibe? Yeah, I think it was almost like the the very act of getting it made was enough. It was almost like Terry Gilliam was almost able to say, you know, I've been trying to make this film for 20 years, I'm going to fucking make it. Do you know what I mean? And that is almost like, that's a victory in itself. For, for me, thematically, it feels like he's repeating himself a little bit. Um, you know, this stuff about the Don Quixote, the, the, the Honourable Knight. He did that in The Fisher King, do you know what I mean? He did some of this in, in Brazil. He, he did some of this in Baron Munchausen, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Am I, am I being harsh? Because directors often have favourite themes. They frequently re revisit over and over in their films. I mean, Scorsese, Tarantino, or, you know, all these people, they Hitchcock, they frequently return to the same stories. Is it harsh to criticise Terry Gilliam for doing the same thing? Um, no, I don't think it's. I think it's. I think it's a bit harsh. Um, if that's, I suppose people could see it as a bit repetitive. Yeah. Um, and relying on like the same tropes that have worked before. But if, if a person wants to make that film that way, then let them do it. I mean, no one seems to give a fuck about JJ Abrams doing lens flares and all of his fucking. Yeah, films. I know. Like that's I a know. real issue for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I mean, I do think the whole storyline was a little bit underdeveloped, and if you didn't see right to the end, maybe you you can't comment on this, but. I thought by the end they didn't really know how to finish it, so they just they just went to the ending that they had in mind, and they didn't quite take you there. They didn't quite take the characters there in a in a, in a plausible is not the right word because a lot of it is quite fantastical. But I, I I didn't it didn't land for me, you know, where where the characters end up. I didn't quite kind of believe it. And normally, even though Terry Gilliam's best films, they're full of unbelievable things, but you believe them because of the way he's taking you on the journey in the story. And this time I went, yeah, I get it. That's what you're trying to say. But I don't think that ending quite, I don't think he stuck the ending, to be honest. I mean, I'll, I, I enjoy all of Terry Gilliam's films and I enjoyed a lot of what happened in this movie, but there's also a bit like, you know, I think it was quite cathartic for him to finally get the movie made. But in the end, it, it's not one of his best. Yeah. Would you have preferred to see this with Johnny Depp in the main part versus Adam Driver? I think so. I've got nothing against Adam Driver. In fact, I think he's a very talented actor, but I do feel like this kind of suits Johnny Depp. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, manic, there's a manic side to that character, isn't there, that Johnny Depp would yeah. have been very good at. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, for us, this was interesting to do a one that got away that eventually did actually get made, because that happens sometimes. And if, if Coppola ever makes Megalopolis, we'll probably be doing this again. Um, but, yeah, that's it. This is... This is one that got away. Um, it's really interesting to watch. I recommend you watch the documentary. The documentary is terrific. People at home listening, definitely watch the documentary Lost in La Mancha because it's uh, 
you know, you feel really sorry for, for, for Terry Gilliam and maybe you make your own mind up about whether he could have done things differently. Um, but it's uh, it explains a lot about who he is. Do you know what I mean? About why he's, you know, why he is the person he is and why he keeps trying to make these films and trying to make the films his way. It's, uh, you know, and he kind of, you kind of admire him for soldiering on a little bit. Yeah, no, I get that. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. This month we continue our second chance cinema theme with a remake that many people rate highly but I didn't enjoy first time around. Is it time for a reassessment? We find out with episode 30's remake Hate Watch of Scorsese's Cape Fear. So James, what's your history with Scorsese's version of Cape Fear? Again, I hadn't seen it. They, these podcasts are great because it's all stuff that you're getting to revisit and then I'm there like, what the fuck am I watching? You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's like a lottery every month. But yeah, no, I had no... I had to go and look up the original Cape Fear just to understand like the differences between the two and like, yeah. the differences in the cast between the, the two films. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I may be in the minority anyway for not having liked this film that much first time around because this was a big hit. It's Scorsese's biggest hit that doesn't have Leonardo DiCaprio in it, right? Um, it's very, you know, very well reviewed at the time. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a genre film. It's a thriller. So it's not talked about in the same breath as Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and all of those things. But people went, oh yeah, Scorsese doing a Hitchcockian thriller with, with De Niro as a psycho killer. Great stuff. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I was a bit of a minority opinion, but I, I didn't get on with it. And there's probably a reason for this and you'll probably kind of see why I had a problem with it. When I watched this film, I watched it on a double bill with Raging Bull. I watch Raging Bull first and then this. Okay, right. So you've probably spoiled the film then. Yeah, yeah. So any film you watch straight after Raging Bull would suffer by comparison, right? Apart from one or two other um, Scorsese films which are better than that. Also, there's an argument to say that after watching Raging Bull, you shouldn't watch anything for the rest of the day. You should just go for a lie down. I mean, Raging Bull is a draining, exhausting film, right? Yeah. Um, so that's maybe why I, I wasn't super keen. Um but to, to summarise the film, uh, and, and this applies across both films probably, there's a few changes in storyline from the, from the 1962 version to Scorsese's version, but overall this is the story. Sam Bowden is a lawyer in a smallish southern town with a wife and teenage daughter. One day a scary bloke called Max Cady comes to town, having just got out of prison after eight years for the violent rape of a teenage girl. Bowden was involved in the original case, and Cady blames him for his incarceration. Katie proceeds to stalk, harass, and provoke Bowden with escalating levels of threat until Bowden feels like his entire family's life is in danger. Bowden and his family take increasingly extreme measures to try and get Katie off their backs, which builds to a terrifying confrontation and also threatens to change them and their lives. Um, started life as a book called The Executioners, written in 1957. It got optioned as a film, sort of beginning of the 60s. Now, it says in a few places that Hitchcock was originally lined up to direct the 1962 version of this film. There's not a lot about it, but it's a lot of people say that that's what was happening. Um, but he pulled out due to disagreements with the producers, apparently. And J. Lee Thompson was hired instead. Um, he's a British director who'd 
the British director who'd got the attention of Hollywood and went to make films over there in America. Now, that's superficially similar to Hitchcock's career trajectory, but he's not in Hitchcock's league, right? He did a film called The Guns of Navarone and got a, a, an Oscar nomination for Best Director. But a, a, apart from that, he's kind of solid but unspectacular. And the 62 film, did you watch it or did you just kind of check out what it, what it was like? Uh, did you just read up about it? I read up about it and saw, like, you know, it was Gregory Peck. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, no, I focused on this one for the yeah. podcast. But obviously did reading about yeah, yeah. The, how people reacted to the differences between the two. Yeah. So the 1962 film was very much a tribute to Hitchcock. It's got a lot of the same techniques that Hitchcock used. It's got lighting and camera angles, certain shots, you know, the way in which he filmed certain people from above or below to, to have a certain effect. It's got a score by Bernard Herrmann, who'd done a lot of classic Hitchcock film scores like Psycho, Vertigo, so obviously they were trying to make a Hitchcockian film. Um, in my humble opinion, that film is good but not great. Um, there's not much in the way of interesting moral shades of grey in the story. In that version of the story, Gregory Peck is is a good guy who did the right thing, and this guy's just a villain, and that's all there is to it. Do you know what I mean? And I thought Gregory Peck was a. Well, I love Gregory Peck; he's a great actor, but he was always a very kind of solid, dependable. You know, playing the father in. Uh, uh, you know, Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird's perfect part for him because he's this stoic guy who's going to do the right thing. He's calm. He's solid. He takes the drama out of it a little bit because this guy's meant to be harassed and frightened and kind of knocked out of shape and knocked off balance by what's happening. And he always seems a bit too kind of together for that um, because he's Gregory Peck. Do you know what I mean? Although Robert Mitchum's amazing as, as Max Cayley as the villain. Uh, the other problem with it is so toned down by the censorship of the day. I mean, there is a... The storyline is is that Robert Robert Mitchum's character Max Cady has been to prison for rape, and when he attacks or kidnaps a woman, once he's out of prison, obviously there's an element of threat that he's going to do it again, right? They weren't even allowed to say the word rape back then. What? And even when they took, you know, even when they kind of only hinted at what happened, the censors were still outraged. Go look at this guy attacking women. This is this is horrendous. So they were so limited in what they can do with this story. Not that we, you know, look, it's it, it's now controversial these days when you have films like Irreversible or things like The Last Duel, where if you show that sort of thing too explicitly, people say it's exploitative. So it's a fine line, but it's so toned down that you were, we're lucky they were able to do the story at all back then. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Then... The remake comes out in 1991. I mean, what did you think of it? What, what did, did you enjoy this movie? It was okay. I feel like reading up on the original, I think I would have enjoyed that one more because it's Gregory Peck. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big fan of films. that I've, We've said this before that when you remake them, there was no need to remake them. And I feel like Scorsese is the type of director to remake the film, but make sure he was doing it for a proper reason. Yeah. And I didn't get that vibe from this one. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I mean... It's funny. I mean, I think the the justification for a remake is that the original was, by its nature, quite quite lightweight. And you know, you're trying to make a Hitchcockian thriller, but the director making it hasn't got the same skill set or the same level of skill as Hitchcock. It's like someone not as good as Hitchcock trying to make that kind of movie, whereas Scorsese is a, a master in his own right who can you know make a film like this really effective. So I can see why they thought, you know what, let's do it. Let let's do it and really and really go full Hitchcock. Do you know what I mean? So I see why they did it, but again, it is it is just a remake of the same story. So, I mean, I get what you're saying. Um, fun fact, this was originally going to be directed by Spielberg. Okay. And Scorsese was going to direct Schindler's List. Yeah, no, that doesn't work. Exactly. After, after Goodfellas, uh, Scorsese signed up with uh, Spielberg's production company, Amblin, 
So, you know, so, okay, let's have a look at some scripts. And I don't know why Spielberg, you know, didn't kind of demand to do um, Schindler's List himself. Maybe he went, I don't know, after his experiences on The Colour Purple, maybe he was sitting there thinking people won't accept him making that kind of movie. Do you know what I mean? They want him to do another Indiana Jones film. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But in the end, Spielberg went, no, I wanted to, you know, I've got the... I've got what it takes to this movie, and, and so he did. They both both directors wisely decided they were on the wrong project and swapped, right? So I don't think right. Spielberg could do a nasty, like home invasion thriller the way Scorsese can. Do you know what I mean? Um, Gregory Peck, Robert Mitchum, and Martin Balsam were all in the original and appear as different characters in the remake. It's a fun bit of trivia if you like spotting older actors. Um, in terms of differences, this is generally much more explicit than the first version. It's much more morally complex. Uh, in the original, Sam Bowden is a witness to the rape and testifies against Max Cady. So all he's done is witness a crime and report the crime and testify in court, which is absolutely the fucking right thing to do. That scumbag should go to jail, right? He's only doing his civic duty and Max Cady takes revenge. So there's no moral ambiguity. Cady is a, a complete villain and uh, Bowden is thoroughly justified in fighting back. In the new version... Bowden was Cady's lawyer in the case. Bodie was defending Cady in the, in the case of rape and he got information that could have got Cady off and he suppressed it because he knew he was guilty and wanted him to go to prison. Cady finds out because he had, goes through a lot of appeals and looks at all the documentation when he, um, uh, while he's in prison, finds out that that's what his lawyer did and that's why he's coming for revenge. So already you've got a more morally grey storyline, you know? Katie's still the bad guy, but there's a certain level of complicity and vulnerability about the main character because of because of his part in the original incident. You also have like the marriage being a bit rocky between the two of them because Bowden's had affairs and he's moved to this town to start again. Uh, Jessica Lang's she she has more to do in this. The the wife is just there to kind of look scared in the first film, whereas Jessica Lang has her as more independent and the possible rift between husband and wife adds a bit more jeopardy because you know what I mean. If you're not united you're more vulnerable to the bad guy. I think that's how they played it. And the daughter in this is much more interesting. What do you think of Juliette Lewis as the daughter in this? Um, yeah, okay. Nothing nothing stood out to me. Did it stand out, stand out for you? Yeah, or? I mean, in, in the original, she's just a damsel in distress. She's a sweet young teenager and it's absolutely horrible that yeah. Katie's going after her. And in this, she's attracted to Katie because, you know, he's he's dangerous and she likes that. And I mean that's a bit of a Juliet Lewis theme, isn't it? I mean, sorry, I think Obi's. Yeah, I can. Yeah. I, can I hope Obi's getting excited. He's absolutely raging that you're talking about Cape Fear remaking up the original. <laughs> so I reckon in Juliet Lewis's high school yearbook, she was voted most likely to fuck a kidnapper because she is so <laughs> she is so good at playing these parts where she's got this slightly freaky attraction to people who are absolutely horrific and dangerous. And she makes that character much more interesting because I thought it was quite plausible that she would kind of find herself attracted to, to Max Cady in this. I thought that was interesting. Um, what did you think of Nick Nolte in the, in, as the lawyer? Did you, did you like him? Was he, did he work yeah, for Yeah, I like Nick Nolte. He's always good value. Believe it or not, although if you were to want to say who I think is the better actor out of the two of them or who I like better out of the two of them overall, I, I prefer Gregory Peck. But I think Nolte's better in this part than Gregory Peck because I believe that Nick Nolte's shitting himself. I believe that Nick Nolte is kind of going, oh shit, all, all these cans of worms are going to be opened by this guy turning up. I believe that he would lose his temper and go and try and beat the guy up and that, that would pl blow back on him. I liked how twitchy he was in the role. Um, 
The other one is obviously De Niro. This film hinges on the two main characters. You've got, you know, uh, Nick Nolte as the lawyer whose family is under threat, and you've got Robert De Niro as Max Cady, the psychotic criminal who's come for revenge. And I mean, did you find Robert De Niro scary? Did you find him compelling in the part? Um, yeah, I would say that. Yeah, Robert De Niro was a bit a bit spooky in this film. I mean, it's it's definitely worth watching either, you know, YouTubing a few scenes or if you can find it, watching the original because Robert Mitchum kind of blows Robert De Niro out of the water in his, his portrayal. Robert Mitchum is phenomenal in the original. He's so fucking scary. And and he's kind of got a certain, like, dark charm to him. He's big, he's, big, he's scary looking. He's kind of, when he says kind of casually how he's going to hurt people or how he has hurt people, he's just chilling... Robert Mitchum's fucking phenomenal, and I, I have to say that between the two, I do prefer Mitchum. So the perfect the perfect movie would be Mitchum as a villain and Nolte as the uh, as the lawyer for me. Um, did you? I mean, how does that play out for you on the whole? The fact that there's a certain amount of complicity in 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 the lawyer. He's kind of he's kind of like screwed Katie over, even though it's this guy should have gone to jail. Does that element of making it more morally gray does that work for you as a storyline as a trope? Um. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, um, I, I get the feeling this film just didn't generate a lot of kind of enthusiasm for you on the whole. It was just, yeah, it was quite good. But that's yeah, it. I think it's just one of those films that, from like a certain period, people kind of think, "Oh, remember when they did the original one with Gregory Peck?" Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, you know what? Probably my grandparents would probably go, "Oh yeah, let's watch the remake because we saw the original kind of thing." Yeah, yeah. I mean, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I. I don't know how much this is a justified remake. I did like it better this time around. I think it's a very effective film. Some of some of what Scorsese does in terms of the thriller stuff, I think, is really effective. That whole bit on the boat, the boat being coming unmoored and going out into stormy waters, that is Scorsese's invention. That isn't in the original. I thought that was really good. I thought the way it escalates. Some of the there's some shots where it goes into like negative. There's like a flash of thunder and you see it in negative, and then he opens his eyes and. You know, and, and and his perception has changed. I thought he created a really nightmarish world, um, but yeah, I mean, he's capable of better. He's capable of making Goodfellas and Taxi Driver, and this is just a good genre. This is just a home invasion thriller from the nineties. Do you know what I mean? It's done to a really high standard because it's Scorsese, but it's 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 a it's a thriller. It's a remake. It's I think it's overall better made than the original um, because because why not? Bigger budget, better special effects, less censorship. Um, it's decent. It's decent, um, but not. Uh, it certainly doesn't jump in, into Scorsese's top five for me or anything like that. Yeah. Um, no, it's nowhere near anywhere near his top five. It's not even close to his top ten that decade. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it is it unfair? Because I, I remember reading Roger Ebert's review of this film, and who said, "Yeah, this is really well done and really well made, but I just expect better from the person who made Goodfellas and Taxi Driver and Raging Bull." Is that unfair? Is Scorsese not allowed to just go? I'm going to do a. I'm going to. I'm going to make a thriller about a psycho killer. Is he not allowed to just do what he likes? You know, I'm mean? saying he's not allowed to. I just think he people are expecting more from someone who's made excellent films. Yeah, he, he, he needed to do something more interesting with it than just do a genre movie, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. And interestingly, he uh, they used exactly the same music. That's the same score from the first movie. Bernard Herrmann was died before that film could be made, but they got Leonard Bernstein to essentially conduct the same score. So when you watch the two movies, it's got the same music, um, scene for almost scene for scene. 
but other, you know, which is, I guess that's a choice, isn't it? You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna differentiate yourself that much from the remake if you do that. But it is an amazing score. So what do you do? Yeah, I know it's it's a tough one actually. Now that you mention it. Um... Yeah, I mean, probably the perfect version of this movie is Hitchcock directing it back in the day. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but we'll never get we'll never get to see that. I know. Uh, it's weird that is the way you're you're making it look, like look be looked from from a totally different angle there. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. You know, it's always good to look at films on a different side. I mean, I I tell you what, if Hitchcock had made this movie, he would have made it as morally grey as Scorsese did. I mean, Hitchcock doesn't just do characters who are in the right when the villain's in the wrong. Do you know what I mean? Hitchcock always does something else. Even in Rear Window, where Jimmy Stewart is the hero and you want him to succeed, he's still a nosy bastard looking into other people's fucking <laughs> flats with his binoculars. Do you know what I mean? He's always got something a little bit murky under the surface. So Hitchcock would have definitely done what Scorsese did with this movie, but it just would have been... It's like, it's that extra great movie that we'd have liked to have seen from Hitchcock in the 60s. Do you know what I mean? Because after Psycho, he started to go downhill a little bit, you know? This being a movie he did later on in the sixties would have been would have been like oh that would have been a nice way to sign off you know yeah um so but that's it it's um better than I remember put it that way I was probably harsh to it the first time yeah well it's good that you've had a bit of reflection on it. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now and we hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation which continues this month's theme of second chance cinema and looks at films that didn't work and need to be redone better this time. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Receipt the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side. Then we turn to the one that got away and to look at how oh, no I can't I've been thrown off. <laughs> Just read the words. Do you know what do you know what's thrown me away? Is that the one at the start has has capitals at the start of every word and then the one at the end doesn't. I don't know why that's setting me off. <laughs> Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried. <laughs> I'm just laughing the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've done too many night shifts for this man. <sighs> then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big scheme. Big, uh, I, mean, I can't get through this fucking work. <laughs> I don't even know what's happening, man. I'm putting words together that don't even make sense. You're laughing. I can hear that fucking squeal in your laugh. Don't you get? <laughs> right.